Hello and welcome back to Learn It From a Layman. I'm Carl Christensen. I'm back with Matt and just Matt tonight. Um, and we are going to be wrapping up. Well, I, I say that with a semi high degree of confidence, wrapping up the our World War II epic podcast series. This is the year 1945, and we will be um, learning what what uh, brings this war to a close. Right, Matt? Uh, yes, we will be going through all of that. Okay, and Cameron just joined us as well, actually. So Cameron is here as well. So we do have a trio of podcast hosts. Yes. So, all right. <laughs> Um, all right, Matt. Let's uh, let's dig in. Let's wrap this up. We've got. Uh, oh, I guess before Matt gets uh, into our history podcast here, we have had a request from one of our listeners to do another physics podcast, um, and so we will be getting to that in the near future. So if you are, know us once again for certainly our most well-known podcast, the Quantum Physics Podcast, or any of the other ones uh, that we've done on physics or math. Um, don't worry, we'll get back to that soon. But this is a great World War II history series. So please uh, go back and listen to the other uh, five parts or something like that of this and then wrap up with us here. So, Matt, let's uh, let's wrap it up here. OK, um, yeah. Hey, so to to whatever uh, fans out there that submit requests to us, by the way, just as an aside, if you want us to cover a subject, please do let us know. But please make it a little more specific than, you know, just physics. Turns out physics is kind of large. So if there's <laughs> like a specific branch of physics that you'd like us to talk about, whether it's, you know, fluid mechanics, astrodynamics or whatever, you know, let us know. What, what do you want to learn about physics? Because physics well, itself is big. And if I don't get like more specific then we'll just do what i want to do which will end up probably being the physics of elden ring given that that's what i'm <laughs> thinking about right now a so. uh, very interesting subject it actually won't be but <laughs> all right but with okay. that out of the way let's talk about the end the final year of world war ii 1945 so just recapping where we were at with the end of 1944 Pretty much all of the Axis powers, that's uh, Germany, Japan, and to some degree Italy, are really on the back foot right now. The Allies are advancing up through Italy. Uh, the Italian government has, is, has seen some turmoil and is trying to join the Allied side. The Germans that are still in Italy really do not want that to happen. Uh, the Allies have landed in France during 1944, and the British, Americans, Canadians, and French are pushing towards Germany from the west, while the Soviets push uh, towards Germany through Poland um, in the east, uh, through Poland and uh, at the time Yugoslavia um, and, and those areas, Romania, Hungary, and so forth. Uh, in the Pacific, the Japanese are being pushed back by uh, the United States Navy and the Marines and the Australians and uh, the Allied forces just in that area. The battles are bloody, but the progress is steady. And so with that, Ooh, we're going to cover this. Yes. Sorry. 
in, in my perception and over the course, I guess, of the last five podcasts we've done, and I guess also just throughout my life of, of the, the history classes that I've taken, it always has seemed to me that as soon as the Allies, you know, got a foothold on mainland Europe, like it was essentially just a matter of time. It was a fete complete or complete, whatever it is. Uh, it was just it was always going to happen that the Germans were going to lose. Um, is that true? Is that is it? Was there like a counteroffensive? Was it ever the case that the Germans pushed back hard enough that like there was a question as whether or not we'd actually, you know, the Allies would actually be able to, you know, was it just a question of getting, you know, Normandy, you know, getting landing on the beaches and then the war's over? I mean, not over, but the tide has turned and it's just a matter of fighting through the to to get to Germany. Uh, I don't think you can really say that. And the German goals, depending on who you were within the German command structure, kind of changed throughout the course of the final year of the war from, you know, hold our conquered territory to hold Germany to let's not all get executed to, okay, maybe let's not get me myself executed. Um, So, you know, depending on battlefield successes, Germany potentially could have maintained some of their goals. Um, and and that was kind of their strategy towards the end, was to stall for time, grind things to a stalemate, and accept a surrender or a peace negotiation on favorable-ish terms. Like, okay, you took back France, but we still get Germany and no Soviet occupation things like that. Uh, And yeah, there were offensives and counter offensives that they launched that, uh, you know, the battle of the bulge we talked about, that was pretty dangerous for the Americans in that area for a while. Now on the wider front, would it have made a difference? I don't know. Um, but that could have really hurt and enough hurt can change a war from a steady march towards victory to, a long drawn out slog and the way that world war ii ended in europe in some ways was a long drawn out slog it was not uh, an endless steady tromping march to inevitable german defeat it, i mean every mile was paid for in blood and on both sides uh, and so we'll talk about some of that as as we jump straight in to january 1st uh where the the Germans launch one of their last offensives. They call it Operation Nordwind, and this is an operation south of the 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 arena of the Battle of the Bulge, the Ardennes Forest. So it's south of that, and and this goes on from um, about most of the month of January. And and what happened here is the U.S. Seventh Army was down south of the Ardennes Forest. Battle of the Bulge kicked off. The 7th Army sent a bunch of reinforcements up north to help the people, or the the American units there, maintain their lines and contain the Bulge, leaving the southern area pretty thinly manned over about a 70-mile front. And so the Germans attacked there. And that got pretty dicey for the 7th Army. Um, it was it was not looking great, and eventually 
They were able to receive reinforcements that were trucked back down from the Ardennes forest once that area was stabilized, and they managed to stabilize and contain the front. Um, but that was that was tough. That was a, a difficult time for the Seventh Army, and they nearly lost ground and people. At the same time, on January 1st, the German Air Force, the Luftwaffe, launched their last great offensive action. It was Operation Bodenplatte, or Baseplate. It was supposed to be this great effort to, uh, to launch a surprise attack on Allied airfields throughout Europe, catch U.S. and British air power on the ground, and knock it out. And to some degree, they succeeded really well, to some degree. Uh, At a tactical level, they did catch a lot of aircraft on the ground. And in fact, the Allied losses were on the order of just shy of 300 planes. The thing is, at this point in the war, the U.S. was churning out a new fighter plane, like one new plane, on the order of single-digit minutes. And so U.S. planes could be replaced. Yeah, at peak production, we were doing one fighter plane every four minutes, <laughs> which is pretty cool. Was that and all in the production in the United States? Or that's was just it? U.S. production. I, I don't know okay. about and And, yeah, these are factories that were open 24-7, staffed uh, uh, largely by American women, Rosie the Riveter, uh, that came in, worked shifts, and constantly churned out war machines and sent them off to Europe, where 300 of them were shot up on the ground, uh, 280. Uh, well, and that's American and, and British losses. The thing is, when you blow up a plane parked on the ground, that's a pain. But the pilot, who has taken shelter in a shelter, lives and walks away. Unfortunately for the German pilots, they when when their planes were shot down, the pilots went with them. And so during Bodenplot, the Germans lost about an equal number of planes, but they lost the pilots that went with them. And that was getting really bad for the Luftwaffe. They were already running short of experienced pilots, and Bodenplot turned into an irreplaceable loss for Luftwaffe commanders and leaders and air like senior air pilots on the Western Front. The the planning for the operation was done in such great secrecy that, yes, it did catch the Allies by surprise. It also caught many elements of the German armed forces by surprise who were not expecting this thing to happen. And so friendly fire was uh, common where German air defense would would see a plane coming over, not realize that, yes, the Luftwaffe is launching a major amount of sorties today, and they would open fire on their own planes. So Bodenplot was kind of a short-term tactical success because, you know, surprise achieved. And yes, we knocked out a bunch of Allied war machines, but it was a long-term, well, not even long-term, short-term strategic failure because they lost a bunch of irreplaceable pilots and a bunch of machines and their war production at this point was not close to what the U.S. was doing. Um, so, so that was going on. Also, at the same time, there, the uh, 
I, I am going to cover some of these. These are the the you know the darker parts of the war on January 1st. Well, back during the Battle of the Bulge, actually in December of 1944, the Germans carried out what became known as the Malmedy Massacre, where about 80 captured uh, American POWs or Allied POWs were just shot uh, by their German captors uh, near Malmedy. Uh, circumstances are, well, I mean, it was bad. It was a war crime. You don't shoot POWs. Uh, on January 1st, roughly 80 German POWs were shot by the U.S. 11th Armored Division uh, in, what is it, Chenon? I'm going to pronounce that wrong. Chenonye. Uh, uh, but that was the that massacre, which may have been a reprisal from Malmedy. Uh, there's some question as to whether or not those troops even knew that Malmedy had happened. Uh, but these types of things, unfortunately, did happen. Uh, Malmedy and Chinon are some of the the better known and more egregious war crimes that were committed did on the Western Front. The, did that happen on the same day? Uh, no. Uh, Chinonye was January 1st. Malmedy was back in December of 1944. So... Uh, Chinonye happened after Malmedy. Oh, J- and, January 1st and, oh, and sometime of in 1945, December. yeah. Got it, okay. Yeah. So, um, But anyway, that's January 1st. Uh, German counteroffensive kicks off, ultimately runs throughout January and doesn't make the breakthrough that they had hoped for. But the idea was, yeah, we're going to punch a hole in the Allied lines and put a lot of pressure on them here. Uh, meanwhile, the Soviets are, are continuing to put pressure on the Germans on the Eastern Front. They launched the East Prussian Offensive, which is very long, and I'm not going to go into a lot of detail on, but that runs from January to April. And it is a steady tromp of the Red Army through, um, through well, East Prussia at the time, or areas that were... Well, you know, where East Prussia was, Poland, Germany, that area. Anyway, um, the the point is, I mentioned that this was not like a steady progress. I mean, it kind of was, but it was also catastrophically bloody. And I'll talk about casualties at the end of this. But no Soviet offensive went, you know, smoothly from the point of minimizing loss of life. It, it may have gone smoothly from the point of we achieved an objective and I don't care about the human cost, but the, the second you factor that in, wow, that was pretty bad. Um, anyway, amongst all of this, um, in as you get toward the end of January into February, you have the month-long Battle of Posen, which is a town between Warsaw and Berlin. Uh, oh, I, I forgot this one. Uh, yeah, the... The Reds actually managed to enter Warsaw, which was good of them, I guess, on the 17th of January, after the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising is over, and after the Germans have slaughtered tens of thousands of, of resistance fighters there. Um, sorry. With that, though, uh, they continue marching westward towards Berlin. Posen is on the way. Takes a month for them to knock out this fortification, and it's a like a medieval fortress city. Posen is is not an easy thing to take down. Um, 
the initial German commander is not wild about this hopeless defense because he knows it's a hopeless defense. He's relieved by a Nazi fanatic who defends the area for a month, realizes everything is lost, and then commits suicide. Command then passes back to the original general, who promptly surrenders his remaining troops and declares to the uh, the Soviet commander that, uh, you know, if it was up to me, I would not have sacrificed lice- or lives to defend this indefensible place, and also Hitler is finished. So Posen wraps up around the 23rd of February, and, and the Soviet army continues westward towards Berlin. The 27th of... I'm sorry? Sorry, I had another question, and I don't know whether or not there's a good answer for this, but sure. the... Uh, were there with the German generals or commanders or whatever they were that um, was there still like palpable fear of 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 Hitler, you know, killing them or or you know or some type of uh, you know uh, consequence for them among the Nazi Party even while they were clearly losing. Uh, I mean, it, not quite. Maybe. I don't know if I can answer that. I don't think it was quite the same fear of like, oh, Hitler is going to kill me if I don't do this. Um, I mean, we remember the anecdote from our previous podcast of Hitler promoting, where was it? Stalingrad, I think. Was it Stalingrad? I don't remember. It was was somewhere in the Eastern Front. Hitler promoted the uh, German commander to field marshal so that he would uh, accept that his fate was to either conquer or commit suicide, as he made the point that no German field marshal has ever surrendered, and I know you're not going to be the first. The German field marshal promptly surrendered. So, I I mean, it wasn't the same type of thing. Now, was that more true on the Soviet side? Eh, possibly. We'll we'll get into some of that, maybe. Um, But, yeah, it was, you know, the... The thing was, if you didn't do what the Fuhrer said, you would be relieved, and one of his cronies that was willing to execute his insane schemes would take your place, which is what happened at Posen. So, and then, yeah, maybe you'd get tried for treason and shot. You know, you can talk to, what was it, I think Heinrich Himmler found out about that towards the end, but we'll get to him too. Uh, 27th January, Soviets enter Auschwitz concentration camp and liberate that. Uh, By the end of January, they've advanced through and control Lithuania. And at the end of January, on the 30th, the Malta conference starts off. This is a conference where uh, Churchill meets with the combined chiefs of staff, combined meaning from multiple nations. So this is the British and the Americans. And then Roosevelt joins later. And this is in preparation for the Yalta conference in early February, which will involve the United States, Great Britain, and Russia. Um, other events in uh, in January. On the 19th, Hitler does sign out. I mean, this is his authoritarian insanity here. He signs out an order saying that the the retreat of any military formation, a division size or larger, must be personally approved by me. So if you're a battlefield commander and you're in an untenable position and you're commanding something like a division, as opposed to a battalion or brigade or a platoon or whatever, 
you can't move until the Fuhrer gives you position to, or permission to fall back. Uh, so, I mean, uh, now, at the same time, there's the, the famous not one step backward order that Stalin gave to his Soviet troops. Worked out about as well for them. So, in terms of lives lost as a result. But, uh, other major event for January. On the 20th, Franklin Delano Roosevelt is elected to a fourth term as president. I still don't know how that happened, but it did. See, our Dang. American, well, actually, I'm not sure we talked about it in our government podcast, but turns out American uh, presidents. Uh, not generally allowed and no longer allowed by law to have more than two terms. Yep. Well, and, you know, FDR, I try to stay somewhat neutral, but on this podcast, yeah. I'm not going to. So there's that warning <laughs> two, out in two advance. Two consecutive terms. It's no, just, I think it's two it, total. It's two total. No, it's two consecutive Refer back to our podcast on American government, where I don't think we actually addressed that question. Anyway, um, moving into February here, because we got uh, about six more months to cover. So the Yalta conference, this happens. It's in um, in Yalta on the Crimea. Uh, Stalin goes down there, meets with Roosevelt, meets with Churchill, and he is so Stalin about this. And... FDR is so FDR about this. Um, Stalin tells Churchill and FDR that after the war is over, Poland needs to be the Soviet Union's responsibility because the Soviet Union create, uh, committed a grave sin against Poland. If you refer back to our earlier podcast about how World War II started. It started with the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, where Germany and the Soviet Union agreed to invade Poland together. And so, yes, Germany invaded first, and the Soviet Union came in a few days later, uh, both of them invading Poland. So Stalin pitches this idea to FDR and Churchill that, hey, we sinned against Poland, and so it is now our responsibility to make restitution and make amends. And under our watchful Soviet care, we will nourish an independent and free and totally fair election having, I pinky promise, Poland. And I sincerely mean it on my Soviet honor. <laughs> FDR believes this because FDR is FDR. I I'm trying to stay neutral, but you can tell it's not coming through very well. Um, very shortly after this, news gets out about opposition politicians. Oh, by the way, um, the Soviets enter Warsaw. They promptly install a uh, communist government there. That's great. Yay. If you're a communist in Poland, anyway, if you're part of the opposition... If you're one of 16 members of the opposition, you find yourself getting arrested and executed immediately. News of that gets out. Churchill is immediately concerned, writes a cable to Roosevelt saying, hey, this happened. What do we do? Roosevelt says, oh, that is very concerning. We have to make sure that the Soviets abide by their words and have the free and independent Poland that they pinky promised us. You can imagine how this goes. Uh, the other thing that comes out of the Yalta conference is that they all decided to get back together at a later date, 
to meet again, and they do that in the Potsdam Conference in July, which we will talk about in a bit. You mentioned the words fee accompli. Those words will come up again regarding Poland and the Soviet Union and Potsdam. So, anyway. A quick question about FDR. I'm not... Um, Was he immensely uh, naive to trust Stalin? Okay, well, yeah. So yes. that's essentially... <laughs> is it... Here's the question, and, and maybe we don't know, and maybe... But is it complete naivete, or is he sensing a you know a, a waning support for war and uh, at home and just want like and just knows that like this if i start fighting against the soviets this will that this is a never ending war um i mean you can go back and forth on that uh i don't know that that's recorded anywhere never what I do know is that he has the Manhattan Project in his back pocket. <laughs> That's true. And Truman makes use of that later. At when does, well, this is going to go beyond the scope of World War II, but I was wondering when the Soviets get nuclear weapons. But we can address that some other time. We'll do that the in the history of nuclear weaponry. That'll be a fun okay. one. Or, or right. the history let's of the Cold get, War. Yeah, let's, let's, get, yeah. okay. let's get back to February. Uh, yes. 13th, Budapest Falls. The Soviets take Budapest um, from the Germans and German sympathizing people there. Uh, anyway, Budapest is now occupied by, by the Red Army. Um, meanwhile, back on the Western Front, on the 9th, the, the French clean up what is known as the Colmar pocket. This is kind of, um, well, these are the last Germans left uh, on the west side of the Rhine River, uh, the last effective area of, of German military you know, capability. Uh, the French army take that out. And now you have the allies on the western side of the Rhine, the Germans on the eastern side of the Rhine kind of staring at each other with the Rhine River in between them. The Rhine becomes important now because in order for one side to get to the other, you have to cross it. The Germans would really rather not have the Allies crossing the Rhine, and, well, that becomes a major point of Allied focus going forward. Um, the things that don't... Well, that said... Uh, throughout all of this, and, and we haven't really hit on this as much since we talked about 1943, throughout all of this, strategic bombing is continuing uh, all across Germany and all across Axis-occupied Europe, where, wherever it is. Uh, heavy bombers taking off from airfields in Great Britain, in uh, liberated France, in just all over the place. And most of these strikes are... Again, by the United States, they are precision for the time, high-altitude daylight bomb raids where you fly over a target, you see it in your Norden bomb site, which is a really advanced mechanical computer for its time. Uh, you drop a stick of bombs, your entire formation drops on your signal, and in general, your bombs land somewhere near your target. Uh, the RAF is doing... Uh, the, the British Royal Air Force is doing night raids using different methods of targeting, which are less precise and just kind of carpet bombing areas. Well, on um, and we're going to cover the dark stuff, too. 
on the night of the 13th to the 14th of February, the 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 American Army Air Corps and the Royal Air Force pull off a joint operation to bomb uh, Dresden, and they use fire bombs for this one. And they they this is not precision bombing. This is there's Dresden. Drop fire on it, and they do. And the bombs create a firestorm, and that is not just a, you know, a a term. That is a technical term for a phenomenon caused by superheated wind currents, literally causing a storm of fire to charge around and burn stuff. And that is what happens in Dresden. Uh, About 25,000 people are killed in, um, in that event. At the same time, Prague is accidentally bombed by forces that are trying to bomb Dresden, but miss. Uh, Navigation errors take them to Prague instead. They drop firebombs on Prague. 700 people are killed there. Um, Dresden is... Is... is is bad there there's no way around this i can't morally look at myself and call it anything else i don't think this one is justifiable other raids had uh you know they targeted things of military value this one was just we're gonna torch the city um strangely enough not strangely enough at the nuremberg war crime trials after the war Uh, To my knowledge, none of the Germans were put on trial for war crimes related to the aerial bombings of allied cities in France or in Great Britain. Like anyone that bombed London or anything else, no war crimes trial for you. Why? Because we did the same stuff. Um, Why? Why was this um, such a late tactic? If we if. Well, that's kind of what makes it even less defensible. Um, right. Why, why did you need to knock out Dresden? Um, yeah. Don't know. Okay. I, I don't think there's a good one for that. That was, that was a dark chapter yeah. in, in allied war making on the Western Front. Unfortunately, World War II is full of dark chapters in war making on all sides. Uh, but that was one that the RAF and the U.S. Army Air Corps were responsible for. Um, let's move into March where things do not get better, but they get different. So, um, the 6th of March, the Germans launch another offensive. This is the last one that they managed to do. Uh, this is Operation Spring Awakening, which is a follow-on to something called, I think it was Conrad III. Uh, and this is down in Hungary. And the Germans actually managed to push the Soviets back quite a ways in Conrad, and then they exhaust themselves, and the Soviets push back, and then the Germans launch Spring Awakening, and they push back against the pushback. Anyway, this goes back and forth and ultimately ends in Soviet victory, and the Germans are once again uh, forced to retreat uh, in the Hungarian sector. And that is the last offensive action that the Germans managed to pull off. From there on, everything they, all of their fighting is strictly defensive. Uh, later in March, on the 7th, the Allies st- uh, 
not the uh, well yes the allies but the u.s army in particular stumbles across an intact bridge across the rhine at remagen 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 uh, nobody expected this in fact the germans didn't expect it they tried to dynamite the thing to collapse it but there it was and so the u.s immediately starts pouring men and material across the bridge they get six divisions and 125,000 troops across this bridge at remagen and now you have a bridgehead on the east side of the rhine river and suddenly you've got allied troops able to move deeper into germany um at the same a little bit later about a week later two weeks later um general or field marshal montgomery launches operation plunder which is another major effort to cross the rhine i believe it's a bit farther north and just a massive effort of getting together a bunch of engineering battalions they lay a thousand feet of bridge at these different locations to cross the rhine in six hours and by the 27th of march they've established a bridgehead on the east side of the river rhine that's about 35 miles wide and 25 miles deep now not to be shown up by any of this general Patton, on the 22nd of march one day earlier uh gets one of his uh, groups across the Rhine and puts out a press release because, you know, we might all have been on the same side, but apparently Patton and Montgomery were not the best of friends. So whatever. Uh, it, at this point, though, by late March, the Rhine River is no longer the, the obstacle that it was. And Allied troops are now moving eastward on the Western Front at the same time that the Soviets are moving westward on the Eastern Front. Uh, another operation of note, 21st of March, the RAF launches a special operation called Operation Carthage. Um, the idea here is that they are going to bomb a Gestapo headquarters in Copenhagen. And they've managed to do similar things previously with uh, something called Operation Jericho, where they've basically hit a political prison, knocked down some walls, knocked out a guardhouse. Uh, the concussions opened cell doors inside the prisons and people were able to escape. And that was great. Well, Operation Carthage, they try to repeat the success in Copenhagen and it goes partially well. They do hit the Gestapo headquarters. They kill a number of uh, Gestapo people there. Unfortunately, some prisoners are killed at the same time. That's kind of unavoidable when you're trying to stage a uh, prison break via low-level aerial bombardment. Um, but the Danish resistance had been asking for this for some time. Unfortunately, the worst part is when one of the Mosquito fighter bombers clips a lamppost and crashes into a school about a mile and a half from the target. Uh, it bursts into flames and burns, and that's not good for anyone in the school. Uh, and, and they start taking casualties. What is worse, though, is that now you have a smoking, flaming pyre in the middle of your city, and your other fighter bombers queue into that, thinking, oh, that must be the target building. So additional oh, mosquitoes no. now drop bombs on the school. About 80 people are killed at the school. Oh. Um, so, I mean, this is the time before warfare evolves um, on on the on the American and, and the British forces. 
with the modern equipment that they have and the use of precision guided munitions that we ha they have today these types of incidents don't necessarily happen uh because you 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 lack technical capability but they still happen today because of factors like this because of misidentification because of something going wrong uh where a drone strike gets authorized and takes out a bus full of kids because somebody said that's a truck full of gun-toting militants uh unfortunately you know this this happened here and so operation jericho i'm sorry operation jericho was a success operation operation carthage here while it did meet its goal it came at a pretty significant cost of innocent life and it was just a it was i mean what do you do in that case so uh enough philosophizing about that let's let's move on to uh another a better accomplishment 24th of march in conjunction with operation plunder which is montgomery's effort to get across the rhine the allies launch operation varsity which is the largest single day single event airborne drop ever where the allies the raf and the u.s army air corps uh, working with the british army and the u.s army put 16,000 paratroopers on the ground on the east side of the rhine and they 16,000 yeah a lot of planes That's um insane. it is that again this is the largest airborne drop in history i don't think that one's going to be equaled but they take a number of german prisoners and they secure an additional two bridges over the rhine up in the northern area and so as as march comes to a close eisenhower sends out a demand to germany to surrender the red army is steadily uh, advancing through uh, on the eastern front on the 29th they get into austria and that kind of sets the stage for the the final confrontations in germany um let's move briefly over to the pacific and and then we'll come back to this um going back to january in the pacific the the americans have just survived somehow the battle of the philippine sea and now they're invading the philippines on the 9th of january they land on luzon um there are a couple things that go on early early in here on january 25th start uh, is a, a prelude to a major battle the u.s navy bombards the island of iwo jima um iwo jima actually gets um the the invasion of iwo jima kicks off sometime later and it is incredibly bloody uh this happens in in later in february and i'll come to it uh, but the other thing in January of note in the Pacific is on the 30th. It's the raid at Cabinatuan or the Great Raid. And this is one of the earlier examples of what we would call a special forces style operation where a small group attacks a, a prisoner of war camp, a Japanese uh, run prisoner of war camp and manages to free 500 allied prisoners of war uh, and they start this off by having a u.s night fighter fly over the camp 
Uh, it's a twin engine fighter. They shut one of the engines off. They restart it. The engine backfires. Uh, it's making all kinds of noise. It's flying super low. It's looking like there's like some kind of stricken bird flopping around over the camp. And it is absolutely enchanting to all of the Japanese guards who do not know what is going on other than this airplane is actively dying over their prison camp. Um, nobody thinks on the Allied side thinks that this is going to work, but it does work. And the the ground elements then achieve complete surprise, knock out all of the Japanese guards and, and free 500 people. Uh, later, they launch a similar operation in late February, the Los Banos, Los Banos raid, and they free over 2,000 military and civilian prisoners that are held in a Japanese internment-style camp. Wow. Um, so yeah, this things things are going a little bit better there. Um, outside the box. It is, and and nowadays, I mean, operations like this, we have dedicated teams in in countries around the world that plan for bizarre operations like this. We call them special forces. And countries around the world have them. But this is one of the first examples of something like that actually being pulled off. Um, Conventional forces get back into it on the 3rd of February, where they start the Battle of Manila. And this is uh, terrible. This this is one of the uh, more horrific bloodlettings of the war. And it's it's terrible largely because of the actions of the Japanese, um, combined with the... Um, I'll just go into it. There are 16,000-ish Japanese Marines that are in Manila. The commanding general, General, uh, I think it's Yamashita, tells everybody, all right, we're retreating. We're not doing this. Um, The commander of these 16,000 says, no, we are honor-bound to stay, and we are going to stay, and we are going to kill anyone who comes near here. And then they start killing everyone around them, including the civilians. Uh, And Manila becomes a scene of systematic rape, execution, mutilation, and murder on the part of these 16,000 Japanese Marines on the local population at the same time as they are fighting and losing to the advancing U.S. uh, Army and and Marines. Um, and at the end of this, as, as the U.S. is advancing, they don't really have precision fires. They are using artillery to level everything that has the potential to shoot back at them. They're not necessarily targeting civilians actively, but if there's the possibility that a shot could come from that civilian building, I'm going to take it down. And so they do. Um, and at the end of this, as a result of uh, the indiscriminate U.S. advance and the deliberate massacres by the Japanese troops. About 100,000 civilians are killed in Manila. 90% of the city is, is flattened. Um, 100,000. Yeah, it, it's really bad. Uh, of those 16,000 Japanese Marines, well, the Japanese suffered about 16,000 casualties killed. So, I mean, it, it was pretty brutal. Um, American losses were comparatively light because they advanced under a curtain of artillery fire. Um, But that was that was pretty grim. And and this was especially bad. The Japanese were losing. They were frustrated they were losing. And so they took it out on the civilian population. And it was not just um, I mean, this was 
deliberate and systemic. Everything from uh, execution and rape parties to forcing people to be human shields to everything else. Um, it gets worse the next day uh, in terms of loss of human life where the U.S. launches the first firebomb raid on Japan. And uh, I don't remember which city they hit, but the U.S. had been bombing Japan Again, high altitude, daylight, precision strikes using long range B 29 Super Fortress bombers. The problem is that we didn't understand wind currents as well as we do now, and there is such a thing as a jet stream, and it was blowing bombs off target. Uh, the problem for the Japanese was that somebody realized that Japanese cities are largely made of wood and paper, and they all burn. And an incendiary bomb doesn't actually need to hit its target as long as it hits something nearby. And so we launched a firebomb raid and it was very effective. Um, on the 25th of February, they launched uh, another high altitude raid on Tokyo using, um, using firebombs and it was pretty limited. Um, and we'll jump ahead on, in March, though, on the 9th and 10th of March, they launch Operation Meeting House, which is a large-scale raid on Tokyo using firebombs, and it's run at night. And the way that they do it is they aim at a, uh, a particular quarter of the city, uh, an industrial working-class quarter, and they basically drop a big X of bombs, and then the subsequent waves just aim at the big burning X. And sure enough, the incendiary weapons are incredibly effective. And the death toll on this one, the estimates are kind of all over the place. But in general, they range from about 80,000 to 100,000 civilians killed in one raid. <clears throat> um, with anything from another 100,000 to another million injured. Uh, estimates are all over the place on, on that one. Uh, regardless, it is the single deadliest air raid in history. Um, not even the nuclear weapon drops, uh, not even Dresden, uh, none of those were as, as costly in human life as the Tokyo firebombing raid on the 9th of March. Um, this one is a little more complex. Um, loss of life on that scale is absolutely catastrophic. Um, you know what? It is more complex, but the complexity discussion is for another setting, and so we will leave it at that. Um, but firebombing uh, continues, and it's very, very effective at setting Japanese cities on fire. And so that becomes kind of the tactic right up until August, is to do these uh, firebomb raids that just devastate Japanese cities. Um, meanwhile, in February, back, back to February, um, the Battle of Iwo Jima kicks off on the 19th. This is incredibly bloody. Um, it's uh, Marines and, and U.S. Army. Uh, we, we land a whole bunch of people there. This is the only battle in the Pacific where the U.S. suffers more casualties than the Japanese in terms of killed and wounded. Uh, however, the Japanese suffer 18,000 killed 
and 216 taken prisoners of war. And that's it. That's that that was everyone. I mean, that's the survivors is the 216. Um, on on the U.S. side, there's 27,000 casualties. Only 6,000 are killed. Um, and and it ends in the U.S. occupying Iwo Jima and the Japanese garrison there is essentially being annihilated. This is the scene of the famous flag-raising photo where the U.S. Marines put up the uh, American flag over Mount Suribachi. You have the four of them uh, putting the flag up there. Um, there's a lot of debate over whether or not Iwo Jima was of strategic significance enough to justify the loss of life. In general, the consensus seems to lead towards no. It was used as an airstrip. B-29s did land there, but there were other fields that could have served the same purpose. Um, one of the things that it could have been used for was a base for long-range fighter escort for the B-29s because during those high-altitude daylight raids, they were operating alone, and they were taking losses to Japanese fighters. However, right around the time that we actually took Iwo Jima, the B-29s switched their tactics to low-level night raids where Japanese fighters were not effective. And so the number of fighter escort sorties flown from Iwo Jima was like 10. Um, so not, not perhaps the greatest investment. Um, so with that, let's, um, let's finish up through March. Um, Bombing continues uh, throughout March. Nagoya is bombed on the 11th. Tokyo is hit again on the 20th. Tokyo is hit several more times. Uh, and the, the loss of life in these fire bombings continues to be catastrophic. On the 19th of March, um, the, all of this is joined by U.S. Navy bombers uh, as part of the American Task Force 58, the Navy Task Force, which begins bombing Japanese naval bases. So that, that'll kind of take us through March in the Pacific. Let's go back to Europe where things are about to end. Um, as we get into April, uh, this, this really is the end for Nazi Germany. On the 9th, the last of their two large surface warships are sunk by the Royal Air Force, uh, the Admiral Hipper and the Admiral Scheer. And they hadn't really been doing much, but now... They're just completely done. On the 12th, the, the major event, the 12th of April, is that Franklin Delano Roosevelt, having finally realized that he cannot trust Stalin, um, dies. And uh, Harry S. Truman becomes president of the United States. There is brief hope in uh, Hitler's higher circles that this will lead to a fracturing of the Allied alliance and that somehow that will be uh, something that can lead to Germany being spared. That doesn't happen. On the 16th of April, the Russians, who are now right outside Berlin, uh, I'm sorry, the Soviets, uh, who are now right outside Berlin, engaged the Germans in the Battle of the Silo Heights, where, again, the Germans are beaten and pushed back eventually. And the Battle of Berlin really kicks off on the 16th of April. Uh, this runs through the 2nd of May, and, and, the West, and the Allies in the West deliberately slow their advance to allow the Soviets to take Berlin. 
I guess this must have been some kind of negotiated thing. Um, but whatever. The Soviets wanted to take Berlin. They did. And they did so at the cost of about 81,000 killed in action and 360,000 total Soviet casualties during the Battle of Berlin. Um, if anyone is familiar with the internet and the meme downfall, where, uh, you know, the Hitler finds out meme, um, where he launches into his tirade, that happens in April. Uh, on the 21st, uh, Felix Steiner is ordered to launch an attack on the invading Soviet forces. He cannot get sufficient forces together. His attack doesn't happen. On April 22nd, in the Fuhrer bunker, Hitler is informed that Steiner was not able to make his attack. He launches into a, a tirade, vows that he will um, you know, fight to the bitter end and will not allow himself to be taken prisoner. And, and that is the scene uh, recorded in the movie Downfall and subsequently a million old internet memes. Um, and so Hitler lasts another eight days. Uh, he marries his mistress, Eva Braun, and then they both commit suicide a day later on 30th of April. And so, and, and in fact, we're now two dictators down because on the 28th of April, two days previously, uh, Benito Mussolini is recaptured by partisans and he and his wife are strung up and shot. Uh, and so the Italian fascist dictator is done and Hitler is has committed suicide. Uh, Joseph Goebbels, Goebbels, I don't I don't know how to pronounce that. Is yeah. who knows? He is made chancellor, and uh, Admiral Karl Donitz, who was the commander of the German Navy and and you know their U-boat forces, everything. Uh, he is made president. Uh, Goebbels does not last very long. In fact, he lasts like a day. Uh, on 1 May, uh, Hans Krebs tries to negotiate a surrender of Berlin to the Soviet commander uh, Chuikov. Chuikov? I don't know. Um, however, Goebbels hasn't given him authorization, and so even though he negotiates a surrender, it doesn't count. Goebbels then commits suicide the same day, so that's out of the way now. Uh, Helmut Weidling surrenders Berlin the next day on May 2nd as the Soviets take the Reichstag. Uh, and can that I, is, uh, yeah. Can I ask, sorry, not to inter interrupt the the ending of the war in Europe, but, but why did. was, I did, I absolutely yeah. did. Um, why was Mussolini's wife killed? Um, I actually don't know that one. I'd have to look into that. Okay. And then there's always the fun conspiracy theory that Hitler actually went to Argentina. Wait, that I mean, is, and and see our podcast on conspiracy theories for how valid you should treat that one. Um, <laughs> or was it something like that? It's one of those South America I mean, somewhere. The I dark have... side of the moon is documented in the acclaimed <laughs> film Iron Sky. Anyway, let's get back to reality here. Okay. Yes. Um, so there, there this were is a lot of Nazis that fled to South America. That is proven. Uh, yes, that did happen. Uh, but Hitler was not one of them. He died. All right. On um, yeah, 
wrapping it up, I mean, on, on the 7th of May, Germany announces unconditional surrender. And on the 8th of May, or the 9th of May for the Soviets, for reasons I don't understand, um, the Allies declare victory in Europe day, VE day. Uh, I don't know why it's the 8th for the Americans and the British and the French, and I don't know why it's the 9th for the Soviets. That would be the same day. Uh, supposedly, the ceasefire was to take place one minute after midnight, so maybe that's why. Um, but whatever. Uh, and, and so that's it for the war in Europe. Um, the war in, in the Pacific does not go on a lot longer either. Um, April is dominated by Operation Iceberg, which is the invasion of Okinawa. And this is another catastrophically bloody event. Uh, this is, in fact, the bloodiest battle in the Pacific. Um, out of the the American invading force, which is, uh, again, Army and Marines, there are 50,000 U.S. casualties. Uh, 12,500 of them are killed in action. Uh, on the Japanese side, it is way worse. Uh, 77,000 Japanese killed in action. Um, Additionally, there are about 30,000 Okinawan conscripts that are uh, killed as well. Uh, what is worse is the, the toll on the Okinawan native population. Estimates are all over the map on this one, but many tens of thousands are killed. Um, many of them have been told by the Japanese uh, forces there that the brutal, bloodlusty Americans will, um, you know, kill, maim, rape, torture, uh, basically do all the things that had happened in Manila. Um, and so many of the Okinawans, uh, as the Marines and, and the Army soldiers are advancing, commit suicide because they don't want to deal with uh, the barbary that they have been told will be coming at the hands of the Americans. They're all surprised, the survivors are surprised, when that does not come. Um, but Okinawa, it's kind of in two parts. The northern part of Okinawa is cleared by about 18 April, so in about two and a half weeks. Um, the southern part of Okinawa lasts a lot longer. It goes um, goes into like June. Um, but yeah, that is the bloodiest uh, single battle fought by the U.S. in the Pacific. Um, one, of the in, one of the side notes to that one is the Japanese make an effort to defend Okinawa using the last of their ultra-heavy battleships from the Yamato class. It is the Yamato. Uh, the Musashi had been previously sunk at the Battle of the Philippine Sea. The Yamato is the one remaining super-heavy battleship armed with its 18-inch guns, they give it enough fuel to get to Okinawa, where the intention is that they are going to beach it and use it as coastal artillery to repel the incoming U.S. fleets. The Yamato does not make it. It is hit by a massive air attack. Um, it is a well-coordinated attack. Uh, American torpedo bombers exclusively target one side of it to ensure that the Japanese can't um, uh, can't do effective damage control by counter flooding. They just poke a whole bunch of holes in the one side so that you, you can't correct that kind of 
damage and the resultant list. Um, but after a massive torpedo and air attack, uh, the Amato is sunk. And that's pretty much it for for the Japanese fleet. As you go into June, uh, the Americans suffer a setback due to a typhoon, which hits Halsey's fleet, and we lose a whole bunch of airplanes that are swept off of carrier decks from that one. Um, bombing of Japan continues on the 15th. Osaka is hit. Um, and throughout the, the other theaters in the Pacific, uh, Brunei, um, China, Burma, India theater, the Japanese are in general retreat and are being pushed back as the Australians, the Indians, the British, the Americans, and others um, continue to press forward. By the 5th of July, the Philippines are completely liberated. Um, by the 10th, Tokyo is being raided by another U.S. Navy task force, uh, Task Force 38. Um, weirdly, everybody now starts declaring war on Japan, like everyone. Uh, Italy and Norway declare war on Japan in July. Um, but Just the big jump event. On the bandwagon, huh? I guess. I mean, Norway might have been willing to jump in earlier, except until recently they'd been under German occupation. Italy, likewise, had been kind of preoccupied. Um, the big event for July, though, the big two events for July are on the 16th and 17th. On the 16th is the Trinity test, a nuclear detonation, the first successful nuclear weapon detonation um, down in the United States. And at that point, we have the bomb. The very next day, the Potsdam Conference kicks off. And Roosevelt now finally realizing that Stalin is just as trustworthy as everyone else has been telling him that Stalin is, he actually has a card that he can keep in his back pocket is what he thinks. Um, also, he's dead by now, so I guess it's uh, Truman. Um, but, uh, oh, the other thing, Stalin already knew about the bomb because of, uh, espionage within the Manhattan Project. He was well aware of the U.S. efforts to generate the nuclear weapon and that it worked. So that was no real surprise to him. Truman goes to the Potsdam Conference. Um, he is annoyed with Stalin and he takes a much firmer hand. And he mentions, yeah, we've got a new weapon. Uh, and and so he's trying to kind of turn the tide, but you, you use the words fee accompli. At this point, Stalin has said, hey, all of our proposals that we had from the Yalta conference about taking land from Poland and in exchange giving them land in eastern Germany, that's already happened. It's done. So fee accompli. We're, we've uh, made these changes. Um. Imagine that. Imagine not being able to trust Stalin. So, <laughs> anyway, imagine, well, leave it at that. Imagine that <laughs> happening today with anyone else. Mm -hmm. oh, oh, boy. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, wrapping up July, uh, another major loss of life on, on the 30th. The USS Indianapolis, shortly after the Trinity test, is loaded up in the United States with the parts for the atom bombs, uh, steams across the Pacific and delivers them to the airfields where they're gonna be loaded onto the bombers. Uh, 
After making its delivery, it's torpedoed by a Japanese submarine and sunk. Because of the secret nature of its mission, nobody knew that the Indianapolis was out there. And the wreck or the the fact that it is missing is not and and the location of the survivors are not discovered until four days later, at which point only three hundred and sixteen of the eleven hundred and ninety-five people on board the Indianapolis are still alive. It is the greatest loss of life on a single U.S. Navy ship in history. Um, after that, uh, August 6th, uh, B-29 Enola Gay drops the little boy nuclear weapon on Hiroshima. Uh, tens of thousands are killed, but the dramatic nature of a single plane with a single weapon flattening such a large section of city is huge and it it takes a while for anyone to realize what has happened Uh, long enough that the reaction is not immediate Uh, calls for surrender go unanswered and so on the 9th of august the fat man is dropped on nagasaki Um, at this point people figure out what is happening the japanese send a message out on august 10th on August 14th, the Japanese, um, well, a right-wing faction uh, in the Japanese government attempts a coup to overthrow the emperor so that we won't have to surrender. This coup does not succeed. Uh, U.S. combat units are frozen in place. Nobody is uh, allowed to go on the offensive to shoot anything, but you can defensively shoot things if the need happens, and it does happen. Uh, on August 15th, Emperor Hirohito makes his famous broadcast um, telling the Japanese that we are going to surrender. It is time for us to bear the unbearable. And uh, he orders a ceasefire the next day. Uh, by 31 August, MacArthur comes in and takes over the government in Tokyo. And on 2nd of September, the Japanese signed the Instrument of Surrender document aboard the battleship USS Missouri in Tokyo Harbor, formally Which, ending World War II. Why interrupt the end of all the wars? Um, I was going to say, which parenthetically, that battleship is on display in Pearl Harbor now. Yes. Yep. Um, but that is it. That is the ending to the bloodiest conflict in human history. Um you, you might ask, I mean, there we started this out in our first podcast. You mentioned how so many works of literature and fiction and so forth are based on World War II in one way or another, uh, whether or not they are explicitly set in World War II or whether or not they take their themes from it. Well, I mean, the history is interesting. The history is important, and, and it is something that I believe should be studied and understood uh, if not for the purpose of getting more people in a mindset where they won't repeat these kinds of things, like we see people attempting to do right now, people attempting to repeat them. Um, I mean, who am I kidding? Putin. What are you doing, dude? Um, so how bad was this, though? This is the part that needs to also be understood with all of the themes and the stories and the glory and the, the everything else. What was the cost of all of it? Uh, well, the cost is truly immeasurable. I mean, there is no 
value that can give you an adequate picture, but you can get a partial picture from looking at the human life cost. Um, when you look at the total casualties, they're in the hundreds of millions between the um, the countries that lost the most in the war were in order, the Soviet Union, Nazi Germany, China, Japan, the United States, and Great Britain. Uh, and the total casualties between all of them were staggeringly high. Um, when you look at deaths from military causes alone, uh, estimates for the Soviet Union vary because um, they're so big, but it's between 8 and 12 million. Uh, yeah. That's military deaths from all causes, like soldiers in uniform. Right. Uh, between 8 to 11 million Soviet soldiers, KIA. Uh, on the Nazi Germany side, the number is between 4.5 and, and 5 million. Um, on the Chinese side, it's between 3 and about 3.7 million. On the Japanese side, it's around 2 million, a little bit over. On the U.S. side, it's around 400,000. And the U.K. side, just shy of 400,000. Uh, when you look at civilian deaths due to some kind of military activity, <clears throat> um, I'm, I'm not going to go through all of them, uh, but China has it potentially the worst, uh, between 7 and 8 million killed uh, of just civilians. Um, and I, I missed India here. The, the famine that happened down there was pretty catastrophic as well. Mm -hmm. um, German civilians killed as a result of air raids, bombings, uh, Soviet executions, all sorts of other things, uh, internal purging, <laughs> uh, between one and a half and three million. And in the Soviet Union, civilians killed due to military activity was um, between four and a half and ten million. And we remember Leningrad alone was, uh, you know, that was huge yeah can i i want to just put some quick perspectives because sometimes when you're listing these numbers they're so mind-blowingly large so like the population of new york city which mm -hmm. is like the most densely populated area in the united states yeah. the population of, of new york is like between eight and nine million so right. it's like everyone in new york is dead yeah yep well, and, and I mean, I'm, I'm not even done. Maybe I should be done, but I'm not. Um, so that was civilian deaths due to military activity. That does not count civilian deaths due to war-related famine and disease, which adds another 8 to 9 million for the Soviet Union and another 5 to 10 million to China, uh, leading to total deaths of upwards of 20 million for the Soviets and upwards of 15 for the Chinese. Uh, the Germans suffering between six and seven and a half, and the Japanese between two and three million. Um, what's even another kind of grim way to look at this is uh, looking at it in terms of percentage of the total population of those countries. Um, so when when you look at uh the soviet union i think it comes down to about 
uh, what was it? It's yeah, it's about 13% of their population uh, from their 1940 figures was killed as a result of one thing or another during World War II. Mm. Um, within Nazi Germany, it was around 8%, uh, which does not sound like a lot, but it, I mean, well, it's, it's like you go down a line percentage. No, that is a catastrophic number of people. I mean, if you round it up to a, a nice 10%, then you're looking at one out of every 10 per people. So. Right. And that's killed. That doesn't include wounded, traumatized, homeless, um, you know, all, all the other things that came with war. And and so I, I hope there is some sobering thought that comes uh, through all of this. I mean, generally our podcasts are kind of lighthearted and we try to inject humor where we can. Uh, World War II is an important event. It's a defining event. Um, but it was also a catastrophic event. Um, at, at the same time, I want to emphasize my personal belief. Um, war is terrible, but it is not the worst thing. Uh, the worst thing, I believe, is to not oppose the types of evils that started World War II. Um, so I will leave you with that philosophical thought. Nice. Um, but that is it. Any any final questions for me on any of this? Uh, no, I think that was great. I think uh, over the course of what, uh, six hours of podcasting or some something thereabouts, um, you've got enough to uh, to pass an AP history test, if you will. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, Stay this tuned is for our next podcast on how to game the American education system. <laughs> Cameron, you had a question. Uh, I was going to say, I think we should mention that the U.S. did dump pamphlets out over the cities before we nuked them oh i mean in japan uh sure i mean there there's there's many things that many people did to try to minimize suffering uh there are many things that people did to try to maximize suffering and there are things that people did that just weren't understood because world war ii was new so much of the way wars are fought changed in the space of that five to six to seven years. Um, and, I mean, the, the long-term effects of nuclear weapons employment are still becoming more and more understood. Um, and so, and you notice the U.S. has never deployed a nuclear weapon since and doesn't plan to. So, right. Yeah, um, it I mean, I guess my my wisdom yeah, in, in war, you see both the worst of humanity and sometimes the best of humanity as far as uh, acts of heroism and right. uh, courage. But you also see just complete depravity and, and uh, right. unconscionable, you know, uh, complete lack of, of anything that we generally ascribe to being human. So. Yeah. So. All right. With that, well. we will uh, return to our, our standard programming covering physics of some sort in the future. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so let us know physics. if there's a particular topic that you want to want us to cover. And please don't make it fluid dynamics. I hate fluid dynamics. <laughs> so, uh, yes, I, uh, I if if it comes down to it, though, we'll have Tim present on fluid dynamics. 
and nobody wants that. No. Nobody <laughs> does. Gatorade. You know he will. Uh, yes, Tim. Yeah, he will be the scapegoat. Um, okay, well, thank you, Matt. Thanks for the uh, great podcast series here, and we'll be back again soon. Thanks. Thanks.